Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. He said you should be flattered. Who else would go near you? I felt so humiliated and ashamed, as if there was something wrong with my body. One of the lads sent us revealing photos of his ex. They went around the college like wildfire. Maybe I should have said something. That was a clip from a video for the National Women's Council of Ireland, It Stops Now campaign. That's hashtag It Stops Now, highlighting the systemic problem of sexual violence and harassment faced by third level students and calling for collective action to ensure the safety, equality and full participation of every student. Nearly one third of women's students in Ireland have reported feeling harassed in their current educational institution, with one in four experiencing unwanted physical groping. Women from marginalised groups, such as women living with disabilities or in migrant or ethnic minority communities, are the most at risk. So do keep an eye out for posters, stickers and other materials displayed in third level institutes across Ireland with staff training, outreach and institutional resources to be unrolled in the coming months. You are listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast, and I'm Roisin Ingle. On today's show, I'm going to be talking to Baroness Helena Kennedy. She's a British barrister and a Labour member of the House of Lords. I'm going to be talking to her about an incredible new book, Eve Was Shamed, and it's an urgent, authoritative and deeply shocking look at the justice system but more broadly, how women are treated by the law in general. It asks about the many ways in which women are failed by the legal system and also about hashtag me too and how that was an almost inevitable form of what she calls civil disobedience. You really won't want to miss it. Do stay tuned. Later on, you're going to hear about a really interesting conference that's happening at the National Museum of Ireland at Collins Barracks on Saturday 3rd of November. It's called Deeds, Not Words, Assessing a Century of Change. And it's going to bring together a range of academics, historians and writers to explore changes and advancements in Irish society, particularly for women over the last hundred years since 1918. Irish Times journalist Bernice Harrison and Dr Tina Kinsella of the Dunleary Institute of Art, Design and Technology are both taking part and they came into the studio to tell me all about it. First though, a couple more things I'd like to talk about before we get started. I want to talk about periods because I don't think we talk about them enough and I just think we need to bloody talk about them. So what would happen if men had periods and women did not? That's what Jennifer O'Connell is asking in a great piece on irishtimes.com today. And she's talking about the politics of periods. She says, Gloria Steinem suggested in a famous essay published 40 years ago this month that periods would not be remotely embarrassing. In fact, they'd be something to boast about if men had them. And Jennifer goes one further. She says, if men had periods, tampons would have been made obsolete decades ago, out-engineered by a range of options that are cheaper, smarter, more convenient and less environmental 
environmentally toxic and they would definitely not involve the threat of a little blue string emerging inconveniently from the side of your swimsuit. Let's face it, if men had periods, Elon Musk would have designed a biometric tampon by now. We'd have the Tesla of period products, a chip to be inserted into the vagina to magically mop up the uterine lining while monitoring your fertility and administering regular doses of dopamine. Or Dyson would have invented a product that would just hoover it all up in one convenient whoosh and would look like a piece of sculpture sitting on your bathroom shelf. And this was all to do with the fact that Tampax have brought out a moon cup. Now, I have never used a moon cup myself, but it's out there and maybe we should all have a go. The other thing I want to talk to you about is the Safe World Summit on gender equality and gender-based violence, which took place in the Mansion House this week. My first experience of the summit came when women's podcast regular human rights lawyer Simon George invited me to attend two years ago. And if you haven't already, you should check out Simon's TED Talk with her partner Mark Pollock, which has been viewed over a million times. It really is something. Anyway, this year she asked me to interview Marion Keyes about her book, This Charming Man, which has a domestic violence storyline. And I also got the chance at the summit to talk to Dr. Edith Eager, who's the author of The Choice. She's an Auschwitz survivor and a psychologist who at 91 goes swing dancing every week. And we're going to be bringing you lots of amazing audio from that summit, which was organised by Safe Ireland, a brilliant organisation doing incredible work in the area. There were rousing speeches by the likes of Egyptian activist and author Mona El Tahawi and my interviews, of course, with the incredible Edith Eager and the always brilliant Marion Keyes. So we'll be bringing you that over the next few weeks. But back to today. In her book, Eve Was Shamed, British barrister Helena Kennedy forensically examines the pressing new evidence that women are still being discriminated against throughout the legal system. And it's something we talk about on this podcast again and again. She says the law holds up a mirror to society and it is failing women. She says the Me Too campaign has been in part a reaction to these failures. So what comes next? And what do we do, what can we do about a system so many of us are increasingly frustrated and let down by? Here she is, Helena Kennedy. Um, Helena, thank, do I have to call you Baroness first of all? Oh, please, no. No. <laughs> Okay, so Helena, um, you've written this brilliant book and it's 25 years after your other one. This one's called Eve Was Shamed. The first one was Eve Was Framed. And essentially what you're saying is how women are being let down by a justice system um, that was designed with men in mind. And could you talk about that first? What is it about the justice system that in in the whole is is letting down women and why? Well, in in some ways it's pretty obvious now, although when I wrote Eve Was Framed 27 years ago, um, it, it was it was less an accepted, um, uh, you know, truth. Um, and, and it's pretty obvious that, you know, men were involved in the creation of law um, from the beginning of time and women, you know, just didn't get a shout. And uh, the nature of common law systems, which is yours and ours, is that is that they're built on the decisions by judges in the highest courts and they were all men until comparatively recently. Law is made in parliament, which until comparatively recently was, uh, was dominated by men. And so the agendas, are, uh, legal agendas are dominated by men. 
But the very black letter law itself was constructed around male norms. The normative uh, you know, uh, uh, situation is to look at law as though the person at the centre of it is male. And, and that has had a great impact on uh, the way that law deals with justice issues for women. And so it's taken, it's been a long, hard slog trying to get the law um, adjusted to, to, to the, that very fact. So Eve was framed was basically saying law was not you know, put together from a perspective that included the the, the, the reality of women's lives and that prism through which uh, law was created and seen um, and social problems were seen was was one that was viewed by men. And so um, it, it was, you know, and of course it came out of my Catholic upbringing, mm-hmm. that whole idea that women had created original sin, that if Eve hadn't sort of, you know, tempted Adam, you know, we'd all be still in paradise. Um, you know, and of course my granny used to say things <laughs> like, you know, there'd be no bad men if there were no bad women. So, oh, God you know, bless so your those, granny. We were... <laughs> We were brought up with this with this stuff, and that that women um, were were you know the, the seducers of men into into wickedness, um, and I think so that was that was the sort of joke of the original title, but with a serious intent. My I changed it this time, and I changed it because really this is a new book, and it's a new book because so much has happened, and yes. Good things have happened in your system over in Ireland and here in Britain. We're seeing more women becoming judges or more women becoming lawyers and so on. But have we really changed the cultural basis? Have we really changed uh, this, the way in which we're socialized um, to be much more forgiving of, uh, of male behavior than we are of women's behavior? That we actually have higher expectations of women and that women do not get, um, well, basically are still not getting justice from the system. Yeah, um, rape complaints particularly is a, is a big part of it, and they're you, they're let down by I suppose what we would call the traditionally the pale male stale judiciary, and it's struggled to kind of keep up with the sexual mores of the time. You know, I mean, there's one really good line in in the book. It's hard to get across the idea that a woman is entitled to have sex with the whole of the football team, but draw the line at the goalie. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we all know that thing, which is that because women, you know, nowadays um, use dating uh, sites on the internet to meet up with people because they're involved with Tinder and so on, because because of women's liberation, um, there's a way in which people think that, um, uh, you know, women women want this. They want to have sexual contact and they're meeting guys and, you know, expecting sex and actually often start down the road of intimacy. And why should they be able to sort of turn off the washing machine? It's like you sort of, you know, turned it on and the cycle has to complete itself before, um, you know, it's over. And, and, of course, women might, you know, find themselves agreeing to one thing and then, a man wanting something else on top, you know, wanting um, to have more than um, intercourse or wanting to have anal intercourse, which the woman might not be up for, um, that might be wanting all manner of stuff that was never part of what she had envisaged. And women have to be entitled to say no, or they might go on a date and then actually find that the guy doesn't turn out to be um, someone she's attracted to for sex, you know, for sex. And so it's, it's really important that women have... To, the right to say, no, I don't want this. And that men have to be saying, is this okay? All the time. And you've been in a position over so many years to observe this. When your first book came out 27 years ago, there there have been improvements. I mean, and a lot of things you've 
fought for and campaigned for in terms of law reform. But one of the points you make is that the whole patriarchal system that we exist in and, you know, the issues around masculinity, those things haven't changed as much. And it's almost like you're saying that it's all very well trying to bring in changes within the the legal system, but actually it's our attitudes generally that haven't changed as much as they need to. Can you talk to me a bit about that? Well, one one of the things that um, uh, that we as young lawyers sort of thought was that you know that you could make law neutral and make law fair, and that there was a sort of this notion that that justice is something that you know is is not sort of weighed down with uh, with the baggage of attitude um, that that really impartial justice could be delivered to men and women just as fairly. And what becomes more and more clear is that you can adjust the law and I have thought of ways and we've I've pushed politicians to reform all manner of stuff in the law around domestic violence, around uh, around rape and sexual assault, and uh, and the like. And we have got many of those changes through, but they haven't delivered the outcomes. And we have to ask why. And the why is answered by the fact that actually, underneath it all, are such deeply you know laid down attitudes, and sometimes they're held by women as strongly and and even more strongly about other women than they even are by men. And I tell the story of getting into a taxi and the taxi driver saying to me, um, I recognise you, I was on one of your juries at the Old Bailey and, and you know, you can't, there's no stopping a taxi driver even if, uh, <laughs> I know. if even, even if, he's, if he runs off at the mouth and, and he said to me, um, uh, you know, they're not supposed to talk about cases, but he said to me, you know, it was on that jury, it was the women who wanted to convict your client, who was a woman who'd killed her husband after years of being battered and, the, and they were saying, you know, why didn't she leave him, why, you know, um, she must have brought it on her own head uh, um, that kind of thing, and sometimes women can be as judgmental of of their own uh, gender. Um, and and the reason why is because we breathe this stuff in from childhood about w- how women ought to be behaving and what good womanhood looks like. And also, men are burdened with ideas of what masculinity is, and they, particularly when they're young teenage men they sort of feel that this is this is how the pack runs. Um, the word wolfish was being used in that um, Kavanaugh case, that young men can be wolfish. Um, yeah, they can be wolfish. And the pack can behave in ways that drag along decent young guys to do pretty horrible things. Mm. And so I, I want us to have better conversations about that, but also an alertness to it. And what I call for at the end of the book is that this is not a women's issue. This is an issue for all of us and that men have to be calling out this bad stuff when they see it in in other men and hear other men talking about women in degrading and horrible ways and that we we have to have that um, uh, you know combining to, to change the the culture if we want a, an equal and fairer world so but but you know in amongst all of this is that is is something much that we must examine. Societies, civilised societies depend on a social contract. And the social contract is that we take our grievances to the to the institutions of the state, mm. to the police, um, and, there's, and then to the prosecution authorities and then to the courts. And that's where we're supposed to take the horrible things that happen to people. And, um, and it's to stop people, you know, just going and hitting people on the head with a claw har- hammer. You know, it's to prevent wild justice. And what what young women are saying today, and it's what the Me Too movement is about, is they're saying, 
The social contract has failed us. The, the legal system does not deliver justice for us. We don't. We do not feel that we can, we're listened to when we talk about the things that happen to us. And we're dismissed or we're laughed at or we're not believed or we've made it up or we're liars or we're fantasists. And so they, they really are angry now. And what they're doing is they're using a new tool, which is social media, to name and shame those who abuse them in all manner of ways. And so that is they're putting a brick through the legal mm. system's windows. And it's the same as the suffragettes. They're basically saying, you are not giving us fairness. And uh, and we've got to listen. People in the law, people in society, we have to listen. But, you know, Helena, that's what I love about your book and I love about what the message that you're trying to impart is because even though you're deeply embedded in that system, albeit someone who really seems to be able to look at it from the outside too, which is, which is why you, you do what you do, but you are saying we need to listen instead of saying, oh, Me Too has gone too far. You can't just go around banding accusations and, and, and that being the end of it. You know, you do hear people saying that, that the, any, any stepping outside of that sort of, you know, the way that we're supposed to go about these things, then that's just dismissed and that's the end of it. Instead of saying, well, what is the message here from these people who are stepping outside and they're throwing bricks through the window? You're so, you're so right. I mean, I, I get very depressed when I hear, particularly women of my generation, older women saying, oh, for heaven's sake, you know, um, of course, rape's terrible. Um, but, you know, a man running his hand up your leg, you know, doesn't, nobody dies from that. Um, but, it, you know, it, all this stuff, the smaller stuff and the g- grossly serious stuff, it all swims in the same soup. And, and it's all part of the same continuum of disrespect, deep disrespect um, and disregard uh, for women. And, uh, you know, it really does dig deep into something wrong in our, in our societies. And so um, I feel very disappointed in, in, uh, in older women, you know, women my age who, who don't take this seriously and who sort of, you know, take the rather kind of, um, you know, the grand line that they were able to deal with it when they were young, so why shouldn't everybody else? It's not good enough, you know, and we should be, we should be encouraging the young. Can I tell you a little story, Helena? My mum came over for Sunday dinner the other day and um, she's 79. Uh, she's a London woman originally and she came over here 50 years ago to, to be with my father, who's an Irishman. And the taxi driver, as you say, they, they can't stop talking. He was just nonstop and asking her all about herself. He asked her about my dad and, you know, how she ended up in Ireland. And then he asked her how many uh, kids she had. And my mum, who's 79, like I said she, said, she said she had eight children. And the taxi driver said, I wish I had, I'd had a dirty bitch like you. In the taxi to oh my God. mother. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, I mean, she came. I mean, that's, that's oh kind God. of, I just thought it sort of was relevant to what you were saying. And my poor mother came in, had the dinner with us, but because she was with my kids, couldn't, um, you know, couldn't tell oh. me about it until they were going to bed. And she said, I just have to tell you something. And she was nearly physically sick, you know, the idea. It's revolting. Yeah. It's utterly revolting and so disrespectful and mm. so crossing lines all the time. And it doesn't matter what age you are. There's something exactly. revolting about that. And why should it be that young women, you know, get into lifts and people say, you know, uh, nice tits and uh, comment on their breasts and comment on their physicality constantly um, say to them, older men saying to them, you look tired today. I bet oh. you were at it all night. And this that, that crossing of, of boundaries and and it's seeming to them to be acceptable um, as I've been doing the book you know I've done the the, the the audio book and I was at a studio and the young women who were the technicians and so on all of them over the days that I did it there was somebody different each day <laughs> and they would tell me their own stories of the ways in which their life is full of this this stuff <laughs> and it's just not it's just not acceptable and so I, I mean what I've I've had these discussions you know and arguments publicly um, 
um, you know, with Jermaine Greer and people. And Jermaine's thing is, you know, just punch somebody out if they don't behave well. Well, you know, Jermaine's six foot two. Um, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'm a foot smaller than her. And all I can tell you is that women don't punch guys out for doing this stuff. What they do is they walk away with their shame. Yeah. And the, the business of shame stays with us, that we, the women, carry the shame. It's not exclusive to women, but it's in the majority of women who are at the, the receiving end of this. But didn't you feel it when you saw those men who as boys, as young boys, when they wanted to be footballers and they were coached by people who abused them. And when they spoke about it as grown men in their middle yeah. years and they wept about the, their sense of shame and their, their anxieties about their own, if you like, masculinity and how it affected their sexual and lives with women and their feelings about themselves. Um, you know, it's not, I mean, that they're, they're getting a taste of what that is in the lives of most women. Can we talk a little bit, because you mentioned it earlier about domestic violence. We've just had an incredible summit here called the Safe World Summit, two days of exploring gender-based violence and domestic violence and all those things from a load of different angles. And I've been speaking to a lot of women who are feel completely and utterly let down by by the legal system when they go after, at their most vulnerable, you know, in situations where they're being beaten up or they're being coercive control or all these things and that they're just feeling totally let down. And there was a case recently in um, in the Irish courts, it was just last week, where a man had um, assaulted his, his wife who had a protection order out against him and had, um, you know, t- attempted to rape her and had hit her in the head and all these things because he wanted basically wanted to have sex with her even though they were they're split up and he got two years uh, in prison but it was suspended and the judge said feelings had been running high that's that's the thing she said and this is a female judge feelings had been running high and then she didn't even give him probation because she said it would affect his employment prospects I was just aghast at that and I do feel it feeds into everything that you're saying I, I don't understand that. Maybe you as an <laughs> eminent no. legal mind understand. <laughs> but, you, you know, look, we've managed to get these issues onto the agenda in a way that when I started at the bar in the 70s, that shows you how old I am, is that when I started practicing, you know, domestic violence was just a domestic and, and the, they were told to kiss and make up and there were, it wasn't real crime. Now, at least, you know, it's now being, at least it's on the agenda. But there's still this problem, which is that it's not it's not seen as having the seriousness um, as other things. And frequently I'm involved, um, even at my great seniority, in people, um, you know, legal organisations, um, uh, refuge, um, women's aid, um, senior women in those organisations contacting me about the fact that the police are not responding to the fact that um, women with injunctions call the police and they'll say look, you know, we've made a note of it and we'll run the, we'll run the police car around that area and if we see any sight of him and so on. Women know when there's a serious intent and when their husband has phoned up saying, I'm going to be around there and you better be, you know. And they, they, they know um, the person they're dealing with. And often the women, you know, I mean, really do then experience really terrible assaults or end up dead. And so we've got to have the courts respond seriously to this stuff. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm in despair about the fact that here I am. Um, I've been working in, on these issues now for 40 years, and I don't feel we've made the headway that we should have made by this time. And I, and 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 we're now. And why Me Too matters to me is because I actually think that we're at a moment in time where. Um, 
the law has to be called out and where the, the institutions have to be, and that includes Parliament, but where all of us and where we in our own lives have to do the right thing and men have to be doing it with us. How do we call out a whole legal system? Sometimes I'm on Twitter and I get I get quite angry, Helena, and sometimes I say things. And I do feel, say things like the legal system is a patriarchal system, that it's not a friend to women and lets women down. And it feels like it's weighted against women and children. And I mean, they are very sweeping statements that maybe a lot of people in the legal industry would think, what is she going on about? She's, she doesn't know what she's talking yeah. about. But would you feel that there there is something, I mean, there is something in that, isn't there? But what can we do about it? Well, the thing about it is that as far as the system's concerned, and in the book I, I make all kinds of um, suggestions about how we can strengthen this, you need to put resource into making sure that you have highly skilled people dealing with um, you know, the investigation of domestic violence and of sexual offences and so on. And you have to have proper, proper, uh, um, proper prosecutorial teams who, again, have great expertise in the field. Expertise matters. And so, you know, we've also um, started creating um, sexual assault referral centres, SARCs, or what they're called. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we haven't, we haven't rolled them out in all the cities. There are, you know, there are some around the, the UK um, and they are wonderful when they work. So what it means is that women can go there, they can um, have swabs and things taken so that they, they, they secure evidence but they're not forced to say, make a decision as to whether they want to prosecute or not. They can be given time to do it but they've actually secured what will be useful and necessary and um, when they come to court. Um, and they're also given counselling and they're given the right kind of support. What people need is support and it needs to be well-informed, good support, not by volunteers and uh, and so on. I've just finished being the head of an Oxford college and if um, there was a, a sexual assault, a, a rape at Oxford and a young woman wanted to preserve the evidence, the nearest SARC was in Slough, which is, let me tell you, a huge distance away from, from Oxford. And a city like Oxford should have its own SARC. And so all of our cities, all of our sort of large towns should have one of these places to which women can turn and where expert, you know, uh, counselling is available, legal advice is available and where they also can preserve forensic evidence in case even if it's, a, if it's they decide two months later that they want to, to proceed with it. Sometimes people, you see, are so traumatised at the time or um, that they... Or they think that they're going to be fine and then they find that actually uh, the the assault that they've experienced ha- is having very detrimental effect on them and they know that they will not feel resolved mm. until they've gone through a process. Helena, can I ask you about representing Myra Hindley, which is a very different subject, but I just think it's, it's a fascinating th- part of your career. Just if you could tell us about that a bit. Well, I, I um, as a young lawyer, um, acted for Myra not in the in the um, Moore's murders because that was I was only a little girl when that all that happened, um, but I, I she tried to escape from prison um, in the seventies and I was instructed as junior counsel um, to represent Myra in that she had had a love affair with a, a prison uh, um, officer who was a, a, a young woman Pat um, Cairns who had um, who had actually gone been a, gone away to be a nun. Um, had had ill health and therefore withdrawn from the convent and had ended up in this women's community, which was Holloway Prison. And um, and she and Myra started a relationship. And, of course, the prurience at that time of a lesbian relationship, the way in which the press responded, I mean, it was it was it, it was it was so interesting in 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 introducing me to the ways in which the system treats women and 
um, Myra Hindley undoubtedly committed terrible, terrible crimes. Um, but it was interesting the way in which we were particularly horrified by her because she was a woman. Mm. And we somehow, our se- sense of disgust at women who who cross into serious criminality is that we, we find that it offends against our ideas of, of womanhood, and particularly if it involves children. And the same thing I think we felt with Rose West. And so it was very interesting for me. Um, Myra was somebody who um, I think was... Um, she made a, a, a change in her life in that when she was in prison, she started studying. She did an English degree. Um, she became quite scholarly, read voraciously, wanted to talk about books. Um, and so the girl who was having the relationship with the very powerful personality of Ian Brady was probably a rather different person from the person she then later became as she became more mature in prison. And so, of course, she was judged as that more mature person, as though... Um, that was the person who had committed those crimes when, in fact, at the time she was a teenager. And um, I think that you you could put a different perspective on it. But listen, there are some crimes which are so horrifying to the general public that they just that, that they can't, you know, that they, they, they become sort of symbolic of something else. And that was the case with Myra Hindley. And can I also ask you, because you have represented alleged rapists and, and uh, that kind of a person. So is there ever a moment when you were hearing the story of the woman who's telling her story about being assaulted or sexually assaulted that you kind of feel, oh, God, you know, this this woman has well, been course, assaulted? Uh, and it is, it is, it is. Listen, the rule, the rule in the legal profession um, is that it's unlike America. You see, we watch all these films and we think that people say, oh, I'll, have, I'll represent you, but I won't represent you. Well, we have a rule in the systems here, um, and it's the same in Ireland, that if someone comes to you and you're a criminal lawyer and that's your field of expertise and says, I want you to represent them, and they are you're available to do it, you are not to turn them down. And I want to just explain to people why that's so important. I've done many cases. I've represented many people on allegations of terrorism. Many people, I did many of the big um, Irish cases during the Irish Troubles, you know, the Brighton bombing mm. and the Guildford Four appeal and many of those cases. Um, I, I, I've done many cases um, arising out of the Middle Eastern thing. I did the, the bombing of the Israeli embassy. Now, if it were to be said, you're only representing those people because, um, uh, you know, you, you're sympathetic or you, you're, you're part of their, um, you know, they're choosing you specially and you're choosing them specially, then we would be in serious trouble in the justice system. Our rule is you represent everyone um, according to your level of expertise and so on. And, um, and so when, when, you know, how would it be if, if people thought that because I had done the bombing, defended the people who were involved in um, the bombing of the Israeli embassy, that it meant that I sort of was an anti-Semite? You know, it, it would be a pretty tough world if that was how we were making our decisions. People need to be represented in the courts. And so as a young lawyer, I did cases that involved um, uh, uh, people charged with rape. And it's very important to see it from the other, you know, from that side too. And I know that men on juries, but not just men on juries, that people on juries are um, quite reluctant to convict in rape cases. And so I know that. I know it viscerally because I've been there and sat there. I remember as a young lawyer, men used to you know, give me the thumbs up on the jury before they'd even heard the, the full account yes. of the woman who, who was saying that she'd been raped. Um, 
And um, and that was a time when you didn't get to hear about um, people, other aspects of people's lives. I mean, I'm talking about the accused. And my client had a previous conviction for rape. So he was somebody who and had only just come out of prison for raping um, a woman. And already, you know, this this woman spoke about how violent he became with her. And um, and men on the jury were putting the, 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 the thumbs up to say to oh, me, don't worry, God. your client's going to get off. And he did. And, you know, so all I'm saying is that... Um, I, I do think that people bring baggage to this stuff and they and our and our sexual lives are so um deeply um and and secretly embedded in our hearts that people don't admit to some of the attitudes that they have and I think that there are unconscious biases that come into mm. the courtroom when we're dealing with this yeah. stuff and we've got to all be alert to it Helena just a quick couple of quick things uh, I want to know what you think about Trump because I know you're friends with Hillary Clinton and what, what's, what's your take on the awfulness going on in America Oh God I mean I um I mean, it, it breaks my heart that because, you know, I spend a lot of time in the United States and I have done since I was a young lawyer and know many uh, wonderful lawyers in the United States. And, and it really breaks my heart to see someone who is so disregarding of the checks and balances, of the rule of law, of the ways in which, um, uh, I mean, so degrading of women, speaking about women as dogs and talking mm. about the way in which he would grab people's genitalia. I mean, this is a man who's, as far as I'm concerned, totally unfit for um, such an important position in our world. And it says something about the the way in which our world is, is turning. I think we are seeing the rise of... Um of authoritarian um, leadership in, in so many places. I think we are seeing a corruption of power in places where we wouldn't have expected to see it and um, of self-interest. And I actually do believe it's because we have promoted money uh, to being, a, you know, a supreme value. That That's how you measure success and um, that's the thing that's important. And it isn't. Mm. Um, and And his degrading of other people and his disrespect for humanity is just shameful and shocking. But, you know, bad things are happening all across Europe. And um, we in Britain are engaging in something in Brexit, which is actually playing into the hands of all of this. So I, I, you know, my heart sinks about the state of the world, but I'm an internal optimist. (laughs) And I do believe that new generations and people like you and a a younger generation are coming through who who will challenge this stuff. Mm. But always follow the money. It's always a about it's, it's this is about an economic model for 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 globalization which has been about neoliberalism which is about the profiteering um, at the expense of um, protections for workers um, at the expense of ordinary folk this is about the enrichment of the few at the at the cost of the many and that's why we have to resist it this so, is a dangerous Helena, time one final word could you just give a message to anyone who's listening who is in the legal uh, system who might you know go and read your book which is called Eve Was Shamed and what they might take from it and why they should read it. Well, I really do think that most lawyers believe in the rule of law and they believe that, in fact, we have to um, have the confidence and trust of the of the, of the vast majority of our people um, for legal systems to work well. And at the moment, we have lost the trust of many, many women, particularly, and it's being, it's being spoken to by young women. And we have to listen and not be dismissive. And so while Unfortunately, and I believe in due process, I think that there will be people who will be named and shamed by, by women unfairly. And, um, and that is a source of, of concern to me. Um, but we have to put it 
in the context of the great injustice that women have been experiencing for too long. And so the call out is to us. We have to get this sorted and we have to listen to them and we have to say we have a responsibility to make the system responsive to everyone because the rule of law in our societies is so vital. Um, and once you lose trust, um, we're into da- dangerous terrain. Helena Kennedy, it's been absolutely a pleasure to talk to you. I could talk to you all day and I'd love to talk to you again sometime. Maybe you'll come back and talk to us. The book is called Eve Was Shamed, How British Justice, well, we could say how justice really, it doesn't have to be British justice. How justice. We should put a line through the British, (laughs) because it it, it really is everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, how justice is failing women. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. That was the really wonderful Baroness Helena Kennedy speaking to me there and she's someone we're definitely going to talk to again on the Women's Podcast. She has such a weight of information and facts and experience behind her. Now, Deeds Not Words is a conference taking place on Saturday, November 3rd in Dublin, looking at a century of change since some Irish women got the vote in 1918. Bernice Harrison, who lots of you will recognise from our book club podcasts, is delivering a fascinating speech about the design of the first uniforms for women in the Irish army. You might not be surprised to hear that they were totally impractical. And she came in to tell me about it. She was joined by Dr. Tina Kinsella, who's chairing a panel at the conference on women's bodies. Tina and Bernice, thank you very much for coming in. Bernice, I'll come to you first. Tell yes. me about this conference because it's new and it's it's yeah, different, it's, really. Well, it's a major conference. It's uh, it's on in the National Museum of Ireland, Decorative Arts and History at Collins Barracks. And of course, we all just call it the Collins Barracks yeah, Museum, of course. And it's on uh, Saturday, uh, November 3rd, and that's the plug. It's a day-long <laughs> conference and it's called Deeds Not Words, Assessing a Century of Change. And what's together, it brings together like a really broad range of academics and historians, writers, to explore those changes and the advancements in our society, particularly for women. And there's three strands. There's the word strand, the right strand and the body strand. And the deeds, uh, not words, comes from a suffragette quote, yes. doesn't it? Yes, exactly. That's it's right. Words, it's, you know, enough of them. We need to do action. Exactly. And of course, it does take its starting point for 2018. Um, you know, the, the suffragette mu- movement, uh, the vote, all that. So it, it, it takes all the events of that, but brings it all the way through. Okay, so the big question being posed is how have things changed um, for women in society Mm. since 1918, for better and for worse? Mm. It's a huge question. It's a huge question. How's it been explored? I think how it's... Well, if I could talk a little about the paper I'm doing. Okay. Uh, I'm giving a paper and it's called uh, Put My Gun in My Handbag. The uniforms designed for the first intake of women into the Irish Defence Forces in 1980. That sounds already excellent. So what it is... <laughs> Put my gun in my handbag, I like so, it. <laughs> um, so I'm looking at the uniform as it was designed for the women in the Irish Army and I'm exploring how that that uniform changed from when it was designed. It was designed by Ib Jorgensen. Imagine they got a couturier. So cool. Couch- and who knew that, by the way? Like That's the first thing, isn't it? Well, they amazing? got a couturier to design the uniform. Um, and how that uniform changed from his design. His design was presented uh, to the press with a great big, sh- you know, fa- there's a fabulous bit Did of archive. Did he come over? Footage. Well, he lives here. So there's a fabulous bit of archive footage um, of, uh, or to are allowing me to show that, um, of the women's uniform being presented to the press. But of course, get this. They didn't, the four first uh, intake, there was four women taken into the army in 1980, in January 1980. Four. Four. Those women. And when uh, it was pre- the Ib Jorgensen's uniform was presented to the press, um, uh, it was modelled by models. 
and only all the male brass were there because the women were all training in Sandhurst. Oh my God. So if that gives you an indication of how a uniform and how events can really tell you a lot about a society. And I'll be talking a lot. The title comes from the fact that the women's uniform had no place for the gun. Had no Sam Brown belt, even though they were officers. What was the story there? Because they didn't think of it. Because they literally, I asked Debbie Jorgensen about it and he said, no, no, didn't think of that. Even though in dress historian, any dress historian will tell you that a Sam Brown belt is a crucial bit of kit for an officer because it does two things. It's, it's practical, but it also indicates that you're an officer. You're not a soldier. It's a You're symbol, an officer. straight it's away. A symbol. And tell me this: Did it ha- did they have pockets? Because you know this is the big thing we always go about now. About no, dresses, they like. did have pockets, um, but they so but because they'd no Sam Brown belt. Uh, one of the one of them when I interviewed two women for this for the paper I did, and I uh, the, the military archives are fantastic because there was a, a clothing committee that met every month to discuss matters of clothes and still does, I'm sure. Disc- and as soon as the women came back from Sandhurst, they looked at their uniform and they said, oh, "Sorry." This, what are you doing? We need, this is not an army uniform. So, for example, their working uniform as designed by Ear Bjorgensen was sort of this long waistcoat, sort of a, sort of a, and they said, sorry, where's our jumper? Because, where's me jumper? Because all the men had jumpers. And for example, they not they make a, They didn't make a jumper for it. No, didn't think no, of a jumper. no, no. Because the women—that's a little unfeminine. A V-neck jumper, no. But the women came back and said, "Sorry, sorry." So, so it was. So actually, I mean, I'm making light of it, but of course, this no, no, was but it's so serious. Because what happened was the women came back and said. We need did they some, change it yes, then? Yes, they did. They right. immediately lobbied, 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 lobbied. And obviously, clearly, those women had not in any way been consulted about not these uniforms. No point. And of course, because they were training in Sandhurst, which arguably is one of the great military training... They'd probably sections. seen the uniforms They, they of, saw the British Army women's uniforms. So they knew what a, woman, a uniform could look like. Yeah. They knew what it should entail. But they were never asked. So, you know, so there's a whole in the in the military archives, there's a whole big to do about should we get them combats? It's going to cost 70 pounds. I don't. They're not going to need it. The women. Sure. Why would they need combats? <laughs> That's I mean, brilliant. But so in other words, this all these discussions that mm. happened, they really show what the top brass thought the women would be doing yeah. in the army. Yeah. And how the women, when they came in, had very different ideas. Had very different ideas. And they made it known very quickly. Very, very quickly. Um, presumably they had trousers though as well as skirts or was it just skirts? Or? They had trousers. Eventually they had high heels. They had to lobby for moccasins. High heels? Well, well sort of court there shoes. Heel, there was Quite, a heel yes, on it. Because you see it was a dress uniform. Oh, so they yeah. uh, So they had court shoes and they had a handbag, a very nice uh, brown handbag. And as 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 one of the, 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 the women... The men didn't have man, man bags. They had no man bags. Okay. Uh, as one of the women said, you know, when she was out patrolling at night on patrol, Patrol duty. With she had nowhere to put her pistol. Oh, that was <laughs> so. That's where the title comes. Brilliant, from. Bernice. That sounds like a brilliant mm. talk. I love it, Tina. You're going to be talking about the body. Yes. Um, you're chairing a panel with various women who have things to say about the female body. So, what is that going to be? You know, centered around. Yeah. So the main kind of themes that that, are, that it's going to be centered around are kind of fashion and clothing changes and kind of constructions of masculinity and femininity and how that fashions upon the body, um, imprisonment and hunger strikes, um, and of course the kind of like the role of the body, like that literally being marked upon the body, um, post traumatic stress in World War Two, and art and visual culture. So we're going to have a paper um, by Kira McMahon, Kira Meehan, sorry on depictions of the female body in 1960s women's magazines. 
and then another paper by Miriam Phelan on designing memory in the revolutionary period in Ireland, and then a paper by Connor Heffernan, um, all change, change utterly, fashioning the body in post-independence Ireland. So some men are allowed at this conference. Yeah. Some men are allowed. Men. Within reason. I mean, I'm, going to be, I'm very interested to, uh, to go to Rosalind McDonough's um, talk because she'll be talking about traveller feminism. It's really interesting. That is a really interesting yeah. area and I feel we're not exposed to that no, enough. Well, I just saw Eileen Flynn, actually, an incredible traveller activist speaking at the Safe World Summit um, on Tuesday. And it really did strike me. I've heard Eileen speak a few times, but it is really so powerful when you hear women from that community talk about feminism because it's from a different perspective and things you don't aren't exposed to. So Rosaline's another woman that's so interesting in that. And another talk that I'm going to be, I'll be very interested to see, and that's Maeve Cassilly's. Uh, she's a historian resident, uh, a residence at Dublin City Council. And she's going to be talking about St. Ulton's, St. Ulton's Hospital. And of course, that was founded in May 1919 by Kathleen Lynn and her partner, mm. Madeleine French Mullen. And they were such innovative, groundbreaking, controversial women setting up this hospital that they thought was going to be for uh, army personnel back from the war. It wasn't. It became a women's hospital. So fascinating. And of course, they had such arguments with the church over there, over their hospital uh, on religious grounds. And so, so in other words, we're going to be exposed, I think, to a lot of different voices and a lot of different names that maybe we know about. But actually, we need to find out more. Tina, are you anything caught your eye particularly that you're looking forward to in the conference or what do you expect to get from it? Yeah, well, I'm very, I mean, my work would kind of engage with theories of the body and embodiment. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to that panel and actually really having a good conversation with the people. Um, and I suppose that's because the body, in a way, kind of holds experience and, you know, is a depository of experience and knowledge. And I'm very much looking forward to those discussions this year in the year that we repealed the Eighth Amendment. I think it's a very relevant and timely panel. There's a great one. I think it's Dr. Kinsler is going to be talking about uh, for pretty girls, there are boyfriends, depictions of the female body in 1960s women's magazines, which is so interesting. So interesting. That's Dr. Kira Meehan. And the visuals of that will be fantastic. Do you know, like that, and that's the sort of thing, you know, you think of history conference, think, oh God. I know. (laughs) I do. (laughs) On a Saturday. But no. No, but even when you talk about the uniform and what you're talking Mm. about is material history. So taking an object like a uniform, telling the story and almost by osmosis and by the by you learn about the context of the time completely completely I think that's why you know we talk we're hearing a lot more about material culture um, and there's a whole new area exactly visual culture as a whole new way of of getting into a story of getting into history because I, I I did history in college and I my dim memory of it was that there was a lot of dates and there was a lot of wars and social history was kind of a module that you kind of did. But really, it was the, the, the real, the big beasts were military, political history. Mm. Um, but material culture allows you to go to all those places, but in a, through a different route. Yeah, like Mary McAuliffe is going to be there and she's very good on that as well. And telling those stories. Um, so it's it's uh, October 24th today. Yeah. We're still over a week to go yes. to the conference. Oh, cheaper, Scott, right there, <laughs> No, no, no. Uh, which is on Saturday, November 3rd. So where can people Eventbrite. go to find out about it? Eventbrite. I love it. You're just straight in there, Bruce. Eventbrite. I'll tell you. Eventbrite has got, you can buy the tickets, uh, 20 euro or 15 euro concessions. But, you know, go on the National Museum website. They have all the, the, the information there. Um, but I think it's going to be a very interesting day. And who organised it? Who set it up? It's the National Museum. Right, so there was yeah. an idea that they came yeah, up with. Yeah, the museum director is Lynn Scarf. Um, I think she might be the only female. She's the first female director of the museum. Ah, okay. Yeah. So so I think she's probably... It kind of shows the influence there, I think. Well, maybe it does, Maybe actually. it does. Yeah, maybe I don't it. know if this will be happening 
except yes, for that, perhaps. Yes, maybe it does. Maybe a new voice, a new female voice coming in and, and having another look. Yeah. Right. Well, it sounds really fascinating and so much to get our sort of teeth into there in terms of like the visuals and just objects that can tell us a whole story that aren't that isn't stuffy. Yeah. And there's say, it can so be many, such a turn off, you know. Yeah, totally. And there's so many different perspectives. These aren't all just academics talking about their areas. These are going to be really lively um, yeah. discussions where people have really had the opportunity to kind of speak to each other. And just to say, uh, Senator Ivana Batchik is giving a keynote as well at the conference. It's fantastic. You've got, you've got everybody there at that moment. Everybody possibly there. wants to see everybody. You, Bernice and Tina, so it's, it's all good. Well, listen, thank you very much thank for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks to our guests, Bernice Harrison, Dr. Tina Kinsella and Baroness Helena Kennedy. Remember, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts and we do love a good review. So feel free to write one on iTunes. Today's podcast was produced by myself, Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.